millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine. This week, we're talking to the writer and broadcaster, Elian Glaser, about the many absurdities in England's national curriculum. Elian wrote a piece for us about her experience homeschooling her 11-year-old son and 8-year-old daughter, and it's fair to say it struck a nerve with thousands of parents, me included, who've been struggling with being our children's teachers during the lockdowns. For the first time, we've all been exposed to the weird grammatical jargon that our kids spend their days absorbing and increasingly wonder, are we raising creative, thoughtful children or robots? Thank you for joining us, Elian. They've been back now at school for a few weeks. So before we get to the curriculum, I guess my first question is, have you recovered? In a way, homeschool was a bit of a mixed blessing for me because I actually discovered my love of teaching and I felt that if I had another life, then that's something that I would quite like to do full time or set up my own sort of alternative Montessori Steiner type <laughs> creative homeschool with a, with a bunch of parents because what I found was that in a way myself and some other parents friends of mine we were kind of resisting what we were being sent home by the school that actually we felt kind of besieged by the school and they were under the cosh of government because the government was stipulating that they had to you know cover a certain number of hours give or give out a certain number of hours work to the children but having to learn to teach and it you know and I have it gave me boundless respect for the teachers who do it day in day out so it wasn't without its difficulties and complications but what I found was that you know I love learning science at school and geography and I found that when I left the worksheets behind and the kind of Mm. really sort of dry joyless grey robotic exercises and worksheets behind that I was being sent from the school that actually I was really enjoying doing experiments with the kids you know we made weather vanes that we took up a hill and you know and then and I just it really kind of opened my eyes to to what is possible in education and um you know when you actually tap into kids natural curiosity and but that was completely at odds with the work that I, I saw them being sent from, from school. And actually, it made mm. me be curious about what they learn 
in normal times because I sort of and many parents thought oh is this just homeschool is this just the worksheets that are being sent for this but actually when I got their workbooks down you know I was kind of absolutely horrified throughout the last few years you know they're my daughter is nine now and he's just she's just turned nine and my son is 11 and throughout their primary school years you know years when children really are naturally curious they've they've had to endure these terrible kind of um lifeless exercises it does chime uh with with my experience i'd say i mean interestingly in the first lockdown um, we didn't have any sheets or anything. So I did get to do the experiment of what's it like when you're working to the sheets and when it's not. Um, and just listening to you then, it's kind of coming back to me because when I was in the second lockdown, having to do the, the, the teaching myself and working off these sheets and realising my younger one, who was seven, and just wouldn't wouldn't sit still. I thought it's just because he's not going to take orders off his parents and, you know, and all this kind of thing. And I remembered that there was a point not that long ago, about seven or eight months ago, you know, when we were doing it the first time round. And this kid's called Henry. So we like, you know, made a worksheet of all the King Henrys. And of course, he liked that because it flattered his ego a bit. And um, and we, uh, you know, like rivers of the world, just, I mean, random stuff, not structured stuff, but there was some kind of interest. And by the time I was doing these worksheets, just like you, I found there was no interest at all. So, um, uh, yeah, I just wanted to put that in as, a, as, as a, I don't think this is just Elian's view. We'll come on to the other point of view in a minute, but now give... Give readers out there who might think, or listeners out there who might think it's not as bad as, as us grumbling uh, parents are saying, a flavour of what we mean. Yeah, so a lot of the examples are from the grammar and literacy curriculum. So, and um, you know, the grammar's had, had a lot of criticism, actually, even before this, um, that the fact that six-year-olds are expected to learn terms like compound and suffix, seven-year-olds are expected to know conjunctions and subordinate clauses, prepositions, prefix clauses and subordinate clauses. Eight-year-olds are supposed to know noun phrases expanded by the addition of modifying adjectives, the, um, the dreaded fronted adverbials, but also preposition phrases and determiners. Um, but, you know, this goes beyond grammar. So this use of kind of technical jargon and robotic formulas, you can find it across all subjects. So in maths, my son, when he was seven, because I, I looked this, this up in the, his workbooks this morning, he was told to find equivalent fractions, find missing numerators to add using col expanded column method. Um, how many different division facts will, be, will you be able to write for the following statements? Explain your answer. And then in science, again, you know, he, when he was age seven, he was asked to notice that some forces need contact between, ob to, between two objects. Um, or explore how shadows vary as the distance between a light source and object or surface has changed. And I really had to kind of think about what that means. You know? um, mm. Or to put the materials into the correct column when completing the extension activity. Or they have these learning in intentions, you know, practice inference skills or identify features of a non-chronological report. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a good one, isn't it? And one that comes up. Every Everyone whose kid is doing the English National Curriculum has heard this phrase, non-chronological report, which I think might be what we would call um, essay or just writing. And the funny thing about them is they're quite often chronological, aren't they? It's an account of something that's happened. Yeah, or it's like a, like a spider chart, you know, so it's like a description, really, is what I think. It's a description of something. 
Mm. But it's just bizarre. I mean, non-chronological report. I mean, the the kind of and I had a lot of emails and tweets about this after I wrote the article that you know, it's real pet hate. But and actually, you know, I mean, this is this phrase is used for six and seven year olds. You know, who have really no idea what this could possibly be, mean. But I think what happens is the teachers, you know, and and again, you know, I don't want to criticise teachers. I think they're just absolute heroes. But I think that because they're internal to the system, they were brought up in the system, that they become very familiar with this terminology and it becomes kind of naturalised and normalised for them. Mm. So, so my kids' teachers, you know, they refer to non-crons, so they get kind of chummy with the vocabulary. And actually, that's just terrible because, <laughs> you know, there's this, it's almost a kind of inability to challenge or question or translate it. In- yeah, you do get a sense there's a bit of, it would be nice, like... The, the teachers could extend these things in theory, but there's so much, like, first of all, like ticking all the boxes and then doing the documentation to show that the boxes have been ticked means that there's not necessarily time then to go, you know, g- give it your own twist. I'm not, I mean, I, I felt very strongly that the um, that the English was kind of barking mad, but the, I wasn't so sure, I mean, maths and stuff, isn't that kind of inherently a bit more technical? Our colleague Samir, who... Um, has rather more traditional views on education, perhaps, than than either of us is saying, like, well, you know, you, you've got to be very careful, like, not to throw out technical language, because technical language is something that's very useful in making sense of the world. What do you make of that as a counter-argument? It's really interesting. I mean, I think maths is actually, you know, it's the one subject that, that English pupils have made progress in, in terms of the kind of international PISA comparison scores. Um, so that's partly because they just do so much in maths because it can be tested. So that's why, you know, it's so popular as a subject that you can test it metrically. So I think, you know, there's more of an argument in, in say, subjects like maths you know, or science, you know, where you need a periodic table in chemistry to understand the elements. And that really is a kind of building block argument that you build up your knowledge of the elements using the periodic table. But in English, you know, I don't think the analogy really holds and, and you don't really need grammatical terms to, to write a good sentence. You know, grammar is a it's an analytical tool. It's a, it's a description of how grammar is working, but you don't need to know the, the terms in order to write a good mm. sentence. That, that children learn language very instinctively and they deploy grammar instinctively. And it's kind of a, an amazing thing. That was my, my feeling is it's the kind of stuff that you would maybe if you'd got a rather old-fashioned teacher have learned quite a lot of if you were learning French when you were you know in your teens you, you might learn some but probably not all of this stuff because it would be helpful in learning how to conjugate verbs or whatever you, you have to do that you in English you just do without thinking about it if you were in a earlier and more fortunate cohort that's right and I, I think I learned grammar well, I, my, I went to a state school that was, that was I was fortunate enough to learn Latin. It was a very unusual school at, at that time. And actually that did give me some grammatical tools with which to learn other languages. So I think further down the line, it can be useful for, for learning other languages. But, you know, certainly I just think it's absurd that, you know, six, seven, eight-year-olds are having to learn terms like conjunction or front adverbial when this is a kind of absurd naming of parts, really, that, that they just don't need at that stage. 
Yeah, and, and, and so just to be clear again for, for listeners who don't have children in this age bracket, I mean, quite often the exercises are short slabs of text and then you have to go through and underline these fronted adverbials or whatever. And, um, you know, as much as anything else with young kids, you'd sort of think what you want is to engender a love of reading because then all kinds of things can spark off that. Whereas um, <laughs> if you're making all reading the equivalent of reading the phone book and looking out for the the symbol 635 or something, then that's not likely to happen. And they might not end up reading at all, you'd fear. I would fear anyway. That's it. And I think what's, what I've found um, through kind of looking into this is that the, the ingredients that you find in the national curriculum, you can really track them very accurately through the system. So you can see them in the curriculum and you can see them in the, in the kind of worksheets that companies like Twinkle have um, produced to, to help schools to kind of tick the boxes and prepare for the test. And then you see them come out in the SATs, the, the testing that happens at year, in year two and year six. Um, and so, and I think that the, the identifying the, the grammatical terms, the reason why it's, why it's become so um, dominant is that it's almost like a kind of a, a tagging system. If you, it's almost like, like meta language. If you can identify, you know, these terms, fronted adverbials, and you, you can track them all the way through the system, then that's something that you can test and you know that you can tick that box and say that child knows what that term is. But, but the bit that's missing is absorption and actual proper learning, you know, kind of you know, integration and digestion of those concepts into the child's mind so that it's really fully taken in. And it's so interesting. When I spoke to Frank Cottrell Boyce for the article, the, the children's author, and he... He said, you know, that really the bit that's missing is, is enjoyment and there's a suspicion of enjoyment. And that it, it comes from a kind of accountancy culture, you know, that you that um, it's not about the thing itself. It's about proving that, some, that mm. something has happened rather than actually, you know, the thing happening in itself. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And, and, and what just with your kids, and I'll think about mine as well, like, do you think they've taken this stuff in or do you think if, if you took them off to forest school or whatever the opposite of it is uh, for six months and then asked them about it, they just wouldn't know what you were talking about? Or do you think it's kind of stuck? Like, do they know what a fronted adverbial is now? Like, or like... Yeah, they know they more know than me. <laughs> they know yeah. more grammar than I do. Um, but, um, but, you know, in terms of deep learning, like relics, like flotsam and jetsam might might stick and and they might recall these terms in a sort of nightmarish memory in a few years time but in terms of deep appreciation of literature i have to say that's come from us reading books at home you know and that's another thing that frank said frank cultural voice was that you know a lot of these arguments about about the curriculum are you know legitimated through saying oh what about the kids who don't have books at home and um you know they need to be drilled in this kind of stuff you know it's this kind of um leveling up agenda and actually what he said is no if you if you have books read to you um you know on your mum or dad's knee at home you know that's when you get that real deep appreciation mm. of concepts and and, and literature and, and creativity that you know and that's the kids you know who have who have that at home and so actually it's the kids that don't they experience literacy through these kind of hideous comprehension exercises. <laughs> 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And let's just try and think about how there's some um, madness, and I think we can stop being neutral at this point and just call it madness, fits into the sort of all the arguments there's been about education policy in the last few years. Now, the, the testing stuff goes back to the kind of Kenneth Baker reforms of 1988, but I don't think it was like this, was it, for the um, cohort of kids who grew up then? It feels more recent. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I actually got a, 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 an email from um, a woman who changed as a teacher in the 70s. And she said, actually, back then, you know, the real was there was a, a real emphasis on creativity. And that's what I remember from school. But I, I, I went to school in, in, in a London and I think the in London Education Authority was quite hippy dippy at that stage. Mm. But I think there was an emphasis on creativity in the kind of 70s around that kind of era. Um, but I think a lot of this, well, the, the main change was really Gove's curriculum reform, uh, Michael Gove's reforms and, and, um, and really, and, and the development of that curriculum. And I think Michael Gove was, was motivated by some kind of understandable aims that he, he argued that the way that you, um, you level up, um, and reduce inequality is through giving disadvantaged kids knowledge knowledge based curriculum and he was influenced by educationalists from the states like ed hirsch who made that argument that you have to give um disadvantaged kids the cultural capital of knowledge to enable them to advance and you know and i've got a lot of sympathy with that although i think michael gove possibly sort of misinterpreted <laughs> hirsch mm. hirsch's more kind of liberal message um but um but my yeah, but my real beef with the curriculum is that it's not even knowledge-based. You know, I think there's a kind of a, a sort of false debate that that goes on around the curriculum that people assume it's a knowledge-based curriculum, you know, and kind of argue against it on that basis. But actually, I want a knowledge-based curriculum. I also want the mm. curriculum that's creative as well. I mean, the, the odd thing, though, is, so I think in your piece you say, is it 2013 or 14 that we get this new curriculum from Michael go you know there, there was this great emphasis on three r's and return to traditional values or whatever and, and this stuff kind of standing in for 
for knowledge. But at the same time, there were all these speeches about schools being islands of autonomy and experimenting in their own way and a thousand flowers blooming in different ways. You know, the whole academies thing was about to be, meant to be about, wasn't it? Schools kind of do it going, going, going their own way. And so that's been another eye-opener for me is how, how far they're on the kind of um, automatic assembly line approach to education, despite the very prominent uh, rhetoric around, uh, around autonomy. I know, it's a real, really interesting paradox. You know, we're raising these kind of robot children who would be really well-equipped to kind of punch clocks in an Amazon warehouse or become, you know, bureaucratic pen pushers. Or Or maybe give bullshit management seminars with a lot of jargon in them. Exactly, exactly. It's it's, it's management discourse, really, isn't it? um, But um, I think it is a paradox and... I mean, I think because because free schools and academies still have to do the SATs tests, even though they're liberated from the national curriculum, they effectively stick stick to it because of having to do the tests. So that has kind of tied their hands. But I think it's a kind of par- also a paradox of neoliberalism. There, I use that term because it's about do you do you want government top down control? Um, and kind of micromanagement of the curriculum? Or do you want a kind of free market system where you liberate people to to be creative and diverse and innovative? And I think that the government has been kind of ideologically confused on this point, which is kind of interesting issue in itself. But I think, I don't know, I, I don't really, I'd like to ask Michael Gove exactly what he was thinking, that you create this incredibly, you know, rigid system and then you go, and then you promptly go ahead and liberate um, the free schools and the academies to depart from it. So it's almost like like he, he didn't really have faith in the in the system he was designing. I remember asking Dominic Cummings, of course, who was long term advisor to Michael Gove at the time, like which which of these two ways are you going? You you neatly got the two sides of neoliberalism, if you like, they're the kind of top down state and the let anything go state. And he he said that the, the interesting and important reforms um, from memory, and I'm you know a long time ago. Um, he was saying that the important ones are the let a thousand flowers bloom stuff and the other stuff's just, you know, kind of managing the daily mail, kind of like stuff that, that politicians had to go through. And um, like implying that over time, you know, as fewer and fewer schools were following the curriculum, it would become less of a thing and schools would go their own way and, and, and drive their own path to quality. But it really, really hasn't happened, has it? Because although academies can depart from the curriculum, um, a lot of them don't, and a lot of these academy chains, I think, are even more um, specific about exactly how everything has to be done than than the old um, LEA schools, you know, that we that we know about and remember. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's it's almost a, a feature of bureaucracy, of bureaucratic cultures, where you know nobody's kind of really imposing this stuff, but there's this kind of weird second guessing that happens where where people self conform you know and 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 uh, restrict themselves more than they need to and and you know I was very surprised when Amanda Spielman head of Ofsted said that she wants to get away from this um testing culture uh, teaching to the test so you know if she's saying that I mean I'm not sure you know really how how much Ofsted did take the, the pressure off schools at that point but but you know if she's saying that then really where is the pressure coming from and I think that is yes and where is it well I think yeah, I mean, the government, I think, is imposing pressure 
you know, through top down. I think there's a, there's a, the lead tables are a massive factor that schools are terrified of. The teacher that I spoke to for the article said that teachers are terrified of the consequences of a bad SATS result or a bad offset inspection that they could be, you know, forced to academisation and so on. So I think, um, I think there's that pressure, but, you know, I think it's really interesting. I've been thinking a lot about how change happens because there has been this massive um, kind of groundswell of parents realizing, oh my God, you know, what on earth is going on in our in our kids' schools? What on earth are our children being subjected to? And but then you kind of think, well, how does change happen from there? And I think it's interesting to think how much of it is self-imposed by the schools, because actually, um, the Deborah Myhill, the the woman, I, the literacy expert who I spoke to for the piece, who helped design the curriculum um although you know she says a lot of her recommendations were not taken on board but everyone's kind of disowning it now yeah right um but i think you know it sounds like a bit of a, a, a imperfect process of designing that curriculum but i think she says that you know if i took this curriculum i could deliver it in a creative way but teachers and schools just don't have confidence to do that and i think it's interesting to look at the curriculum and look at the testing regime and see what actually is necessary but and what is just happening out of habit fear box ticking you know routines and and so on and actually i think what the problem is that once you have this script that's so hard to depart from i think teachers you know one step to the left or right um is terrifying because it's because it's so codified what they're teaching that they're not actually using their autonomy and their their own minds and their own language to 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 deliver the lesson so you know but it's interesting to think well what latitude do schools have within the current system but also what needs to change i mean i think the other thing though as well as the kind of details of english educational policy and the general exhaustion of teachers is a broader thing across the, the the sort of western world of just you know the meritocracy and like everything you need qualifications for any good jobs and to get to the best jobs, you need to have the best qualifications and all of that in a way that wasn't as true in the distant past. And I think that just breeds a kind of risk aversion. I think there's probably a lot of parents who are just really anxious about their children being told they're below age expectation or whatever in one subject for one year. Um, and they're the kind of parents that kind of make the most noise. And so there's probably a wider societal thing here as well as an educational policy thing, I, 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 I think. Yeah, absolutely. And this whole idea of yeah, preparing children for the, for the, um, the, econ- the economy in the workplace. I mean, I think all of that kind of instrumentalist sort of pragmatic thinking is kind of dep- very depressing, really. And, and also... You know, what do we know about the future? You know, the future is kind of automation, like post-work. <laughs> I mean, really, what do we know? Like my my daughter, you know, age seven, learning PowerPoint. What is the point of learning <laughs> a particular software package that's going to be redundant in, in five or ten years? So, you know, I think, I think relevance can be really misapplied. And actually, you know, you look to the Silicon Valley tech barons you know and all their kids go to Steiner Waldorf schools you know where they never touch a computer and they kind of yeah it's all forest school approach so you know kind of learning from first principles which which our kids just do so little of I mean even coding just seems like a sort of Byzantine sort of (laughs) formulaic process that you know where's the kind of 
basic hands-on experimental you know exploration of the world and i think i'm really interested in science in particular you know that it's such a big public engagement with science community in this country who are really bemoaning the lack of general in, um, knowledge of science engagement with science in 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 among amongst the in the public and i think you know i'd really encourage them to look to the primary school science curriculum and just see what little science actually goes on in in schools and 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 really address the roots of it there okay last question then we've all seen this we've all been through it for large chunks of a year now is it going to be one of those moments where something does shift or are all these pressures of conformity and testing and the broader meritocracy are they too big for parents being appalled by what's going on to make any difference well i mean the government's talking about um, that, saying that it wants to introduce in, or look at the curriculum. They've appointed Kevin Collins as the kind of catch-up czar, and he seems quite enlightened. There's a massive yeah, opinion shift amongst parents, but also there's an article I saw recently in TES by Mary Bowsted, the union leader, saying that there seems to be change in the air. I mean, yeah, what, how does change happen? Is it top-down? Is it bottom-up? It's so interesting. I think when I spoke to Tim Oates, who designed the 2014 curriculum, he said, yes, we do need to look at the grammar curriculum. It's, it has become overstuffed. So maybe there'll be some, I mean, hopefully there'll be some curriculum reform. But then you have to also get rid of the whole regime of testing and, and um, league tables and inspections, which is really driving all this. And actually, even I think the opposition, Labour Party, you know, this is kind of toxic language of accountability which seems like such a good concept you know and it's applied across the public sector but what it means really in practice is the language of accountancy you know of measuring <laughs> and of um, testing and you know and these terrible metrics um that our children you know that's are being subject to that's really how we've got them into this sausage factory so i think there really has to be yeah a change on all all levels, intellectually and also practically. So, I mean, there's some great campaigning groups, you know, like More Than a Score, um, Progressive Education, Rescue Our Schools, you know, they're campaigning on this front. So, you know, more power to their elbow. Well, let's see. Um, I mean, you've certainly, it certainly sounds like a very big conversation. It's a conversation you've certainly helped Elian to move forward. That's all for us. If you haven't yet read Elian's blockbuster essay, you can look it up on the Prospect website. It's got the headline, Homeschooling has revealed the absurdity of England's national curriculum by Elian Glaser. So do uh, have a look at that. Thanks for joining us this week. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating or a view. But that's it for now. So goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.